in, and Happy New Year once again. Before I forget, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we always take up a mercy ministry offering during the last song. So just to let you know that, I know I always forget that, so I'm doing it ahead of time. So mercy ministry offering today uh, during the Lord's Supper as we sing the last song, and that goes to support and help folks here within our own body who have financial needs as well as externally in our community. Okay, turn with me this morning to John chapter 5, and we're going to look at this last section that we started looking at last week, John 5, and we're going to look at 15 through 27 this morning just to give us a little bit more context, but John 5, 15 through 27, it's page 890 if you want to look in the Bible, in the pew Bible in the row before you, you can grab that and follow along, but this is John chapter 5, 15 through 27. And if you remember last week, we saw Jesus healing the guy who was beside the pool at Bethesda, had been there for 37, well, had been lame for 37 years. Jesus heals him and then tells him, or he gets up and, and runs away after being healed and then encounters the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, right? And they begin to question him, who healed you? You, can, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. That's kind of the context of where we're at. And we saw how Jesus dealt with the guy who was healed last week. And now this week, we'll see how Jesus deals with his accusers, the Pharisees who gave the healed guy a hard time and, and certainly give Jesus more of a hard time now. So let's look at John 5, chapter 5, 15 through 27. Hear now God's word. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Okay, that was the guy who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. So Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, and the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to do to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and it's now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. We do pray that you would bring it to bear in our hearts and minds this morning. And we thank you that it is living and active. Thank you, Lord, that it is through your word that you show us the truth and the way and the life. And Lord, it is through your word that you give us um, transformation um, and you bring us from death to life. So thank you, Lord. And we pray that you would just speak to us this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay. Well, I'm reminded of a story that's circulating around the outdoor types. You know, we live here in the mountains, lots of good hiking around us. So we have a lot of outdoorsy type folks around here, right? And there's a story circulating around. It actually happened in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, but there was a hiker hiking. Uh, He lost his way 
was running out of food, and so he was in a desperate situation. So he was sitting by a campfire, and he was cooking this bird with a stick over the fire, roasting this bird over the fire. And about this time, a forest, forest ranger happened upon this hiker's camp, uh, you know, and asked the camper, this hiker, what he, what he was doing, what he was fixing for dinner. And the camper replied that it was a seagull, okay? Now, the forest uh, ranger, his face began to kind of frown, right? And he just kind of lost his countenance. And he said, listen, son, it's, it's against the law. I don't know if you know this, but it's against the law to kill that particular bird, a seagull. And the hiker was like, oh, gosh, I didn't know that. But let me just tell you my story. I've been lost. I'm out of food. I'm not quite sure which trail I need to take. And so I was in a desperate situation. So I was able to kill this bird and, and eat this seagull to maintain my strength. Well, the, you know, the forest ranger felt pretty sympathetic with this guy. I felt a little bit of compassion for him and said, okay, well, I'm not going to cite you this time. I'm going to give you a verbal warning, but, you know, you can't eat seagulls like that. So the camper was, thank you so much. You know, he's just gracious. Wow, thank you for not giving me that citation. So the ranger turns away, and as he's walking away, he turns back around and goes, you know, I've always wondered, what does is, what is seagull taste like? Just out of curiosity. Thinking for a moment, the hiker said, well, I'd place it somewhere between a spotted owl and a bald eagle. So, <laughs> well, needless to say, this camper's, hiker's words got him in a huge amount of trouble, right? He would have been better to not say anything. And I think this passage this morning is kind of like the hiker, right? When we see Jesus making these grand statements about who he is, grand statements about who his father is, grand statements of challenging the Pharisees uh, about the Sabbath and, and them challenging him about breaking the Sabbath and then instructing the uh, paralyzed guy to, to go and do likewise when he picks up his mat and carries it on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is defending his actions here to the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are considering that Jesus has even done a greater offense than just telling this guy to break the Sabbath, but he's claiming to be equal with God, right? We read that in John. One of my favorite movies, I don't know if y'all have ever seen the movie Braveheart. It came out the year, uh, I think I was a sophomore in college, and I've seen that movie probably a couple of dozen times. I could, my friends, we, we used to quote that movie to each other, right? And Braveheart, William Wallace, Mel Gibson kind of was one of my heroes. And if you remember in the movie, when he's going to pick, he's going to have this first battle with uh, Edward I Longshanks. He rides out into the middle of the field, right? And he picks a fight. I'm going to pick a fight. You remember that? And he goes and he picks a fight with King Edward, King uh, Longshanks, right? And in a sense, Jesus is doing that here with the Pharisees. In a sense, he's almost picking a fight with the Pharisees. He's not doing it maliciously. He's not doing it to be ability, but he's really trying to teach them a lesson here, trying to show them, reveal to them who he really is. So we're going to see a few things this morning as Jesus has this dialogue with the Pharisees. We saw the dialogue he had with the guy who was healed by the pool at Bethesda last week. And now we'll see this dialogue that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And he shows them three things about himself. First of all, he shows him, if you're taking notes, his divinity. Jesus shows them his divinity. Secondly, he shows him his authority. And then thirdly, he shows them this offer. He tells them or he gives them this offer. So the first thing we'll see this morning is his divinity. So let's look at verses 16 through 18 once again, because this is a a theologically heavy passage, so we don't want to miss this. Verse 16 through 18, Jesus says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal 
with God. So we see that John uses this key term here in verse 16. Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, apparently Jesus had a very nasty habit of healing people on the Sabbath, right? At least that was what the Pharisees saw. That's the way they took it. And and John tells us that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because of these things that he was doing on the Sabbath. He was healing people, right? And here was a problem, at least to the Pharisees' mind, a problem of healing people on the Sabbath. They had a problem with that, twofold problem with Jesus healing people on the Sabbath. First of all, according to the Pharisees, Jesus was breaking the law by working on the Sabbath, by healing someone, okay? And then secondly, it really made the Pharisees look bad because the Pharisees were driven by God's law, right? They were God's law keepers. They were God's law uh, uh, protectors. They were the ones keeping the rules, keeping the law. And so they realized that they did not have the power that Jesus had. They didn't have the power. God's law didn't give them the power to heal people, to make people lock walk. And so they had two problems. And in fact, if you remember last week, Jesus had broken all of their categories. We saw that last week, that Jesus is the great category breaker, right? See, the Jews had laws. We saw that they had these crazy laws that you couldn't even pick up your mat or your bed or your blanket that you had been laying on on the Sabbath day. You weren't allowed to do that. But then Jesus came in and messed with their categories, and they didn't have a category for somebody who was healed and then could pick up their mat and walk. They didn't have a particular law written down for that. And so Jesus was busting up their categories. And so Jesus comes and he starts doing these things on the Sabbath. The, the categories of the Pharisees are beginning to crumble. They're struggling to regain control. And they freak out and they're going to persecute Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus could have done here, right, was just to correct the Pharisees and say, listen, let me correctly explain the Sabbath to you from your own law, right? He could have done that. Uh, you know, but they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. If you look at the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment, right? What does it say? You shall do no what? No work on the Sabbath. Take it even further back. Where does the fourth commandment come from? It comes from Genesis 2, doesn't it? Right? What does Genesis 2 say? God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, right? So here's this qualifier on the Sabbath rule that comes from uh, the fourth commandment. It said, God rested from his work of what? Creation, right? That was the only thing God rested from. He was still upholding the world, right? God was still working, upholding the world, but he rested on the seventh day uh, from creating, right? From creating. And so the Pharisees really didn't understand the Sabbath. And I think that's true of many of us. We don't really understand the Sabbath. It really is a gift, that the Lord gives us, right? See, when God rested, he rested from his work of creation. But did God rest from his work of compassion? No. Did he rest from his work of redemption? No. See, the purpose of the Sabbath for us, this gift that the Lord gives us in the Sabbath is that we can rest from our worldly employments, that we can rest, right? We can sit around and we can enjoy our family. We can enjoy recreation with our family. We can worship the Lord and savor the Lord Jesus. We can do acts of mercy and compassion. So what's more compassionate than Jesus healing a lame man on the Sabbath, right? And so Jesus could have explained all of that, right? He could have made the Pharisees look like complete fools in front of everybody else, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he takes it up even a notch higher, right? Instead of saying all of this stuff about the Sabbath, what does he say? He says something that's even more offensive to these Pharisees. What does he say? You know what? My father is working until now. 
My father is working until now. And what does that mean? Now, to the Jews, to those Pharisees, they would have totally not, they would have not disagreed with that. The rabbis taught that God was always providentially working, right? And Jesus says, my father is working until now. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. But then Jesus tacks on this qualifier phrase to that. My father is working until now. And then what does he say? And I too am even working now. I am working alongside my father, Jesus says. Now to the average Jew, the the average Jew would have comfortably referred to God as our father, right? Because on the one hand, that maintains that God is generally benevolent. He's a father. He's a good father. The Jews like that. And they would have comfortably said our father because in a sense that kind of keeps God at a safe distance using the term our father. But if they would have said God is my father, that would have made them have to deal more intimately. That would have made them have to deal more personally with God as a father. So Jesus makes no bones about it when he addresses God as what? My father. And in doing so, he's claiming that he has this intense familiarity with God. And the only person who would claim to have that kind of intense familiarity with God would be either a lunatic or a liar or really the son of God, right? And so those first two things, being a lunatic, well, that's kind of excusable. That's kind of forgivable if you're crazy. But being a blasphemer, which is what the Jews, the Pharisees saw Jesus as, well, that's totally unforgivable. But for the Jews, for Jesus to say that he was God's son would be unthinkable, right? That would have just sent them flying off the handle. So the first problem here for these Pharisees, for the Jews, was Jesus' familiarity with the Father. He's giving them this picture of his utter familiarity he has with the Father. But then he takes it even a notch further, and he talks about having equality with God the Father. Notice what he says. My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So Jesus is not saying, well, since God works on Sundays, I get to work on Sundays and have acts of compassion. No, he says, my father is working and I am working. In other words, he's saying everything that I do is equally important to that which God my father does. And in standing in front of him, these Jews, they're about ready to kill him, right? Jesus is saying, yeah, whatever my father does, whatever God does, everything that I do is just as important. You see what he's claiming? I and the father are one. Everything that my father does, I do And it's equally as important as what my father does. Now, most of us, we walk around most times going, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal, right? We think about that about ourselves. We like to think that we're kind of a big deal, right? Jesus really could say, listen, I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) I really am equal to my father. Everything that my father does, I do. And it's equally as important as what my father does. For Jesus, it was true. And the Pharisees were freaking out about this. No wonder John says they were ready to persecute him, ready to kill him. Jesus begins to clarify this whole situation. Listen to what he says in verse 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. I'll tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. You see, the Pharisees weren't angry at him because he was claiming familiarity with the Father, right? They were angry with him because Jesus was saying, listen, I am in complete union with the Father. Jesus is using this Jewish apprenticeship metaphor right here for the Pharisees to kind of help paint a picture for them. 
And this metaphor, this Jewish apprenticeship metaphor, was like a father who would apprentice his son. Say the father was a plumber or he was an electrician. He's going to take his son behind or by his wing and he's going to teach him the trade, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here, that the father takes the son and teaches him this particular trade. Jesus is saying, the son sees what the father is doing and everything that I see him doing, I do, except I am a perfect apprentice. He does it, the father does it, I do it. The apprentice does exactly what the apprentice does exactly what the master does and what the master tells him to do. But then the flip side of that metaphor is that the master loves his apprentice and he will show him everything that he needs to do. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, "My father loves me, the son, and shows me all things, and I am in complete submission to my father." He gives me everything. He shows me everything. He has shown me even greater things. And he is going to show me even greater things. And then the beauty of this, these great things, Jesus says, listen, the Father is going to show me great things. And I'm going to show these great things to you. And they are going to make you marvel. He tells the Pharisees, they're going to make you marvel. You're going to be astounded at these great things. He's saying, Wellspring, I'm going to be doing these great things. And it's going to make you marvel. Now, what in the world could the Father show Jesus that would make the Pharisees marvel, that could make us marvel. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to show you the authority that I have. And so Jesus begins to reveal to the Pharisees, to us, his authority. Look what he says in verse 20 and following. For the Father loves the Son. We'll go to 23. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead, and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, there are two, there are two prerogatives that only belong to God and no, nobody else. The first one is this, that only belongs to God, the giving of life and the raising of the dead. Only God has that prerogative. Second one is that judgment. Only the Father has the prerogative of judgment. And so if you were a good Jewish Pharisee, if you were a good Jewish leader back then, here's what you were counting on. Your hope of hope that you were counting on in your life was this. If I can please God, I will be okay. If I please God, it's kind of that I will do this, he will give me this benefit deal. If I please God, he will give me life. If I please God, he will judge me gently and he will judge me beneficently, right? And so here's Jesus coming into their hope. If I please God, he will be nice to me. If I please God, he will give me life. If I please God, he will give me good things. Here Jesus comes in and busts up their category once again and says, let me tell you something, guys. Here's how you should marvel. Not at yourself and how you please God, but listen, here's how you should marvel. That the Father raises the dead and gives life. And then he says, so the Son gives life to whomever he pleases. Now, don't miss this. This is key. This is foundational. The Son, Jesus, says his Father has given him the prerogative that the Son gives life to whomever he pleases. And in a way, as you hear that, that in, a, in a sense, should be almost frightening because many of us put God in a box, don't we? C.S. Lewis wrote an a, a article or an essay on, called God in the Dock. And dock is a term for the courtroom or the, uh, the uh, witness stand that's surrounded by a rail, right? That's the dock in the courtroom. 
And so Lewis titled it God in the Dock. And he says that we often, we try to put God in the witness chair and the witness stand in this courtroom and see if we can grill him and if we should be able to rely upon God. But the interesting thing is that God is not in the dock, right? We're the ones in the witness chair. We're the one in the dock. We are the one in the dock. Jesus doesn't have to defend himself. We're the ones who have to defend ourselves. And Jesus is saying the Son gives life to whom he pleases. So think about this. On the one hand, Jesus says what? I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He says that later on in the Gospel of John. We know that, right? But he says, so I am the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. But also, if you want life, you can only get it from me. But here's a catch, Jesus says. You can only get life from me if I first want to give it to you. Do you get that? You can only get life from me if I first want to give it to you. And so in other words, not only are we dependent upon Jesus for life, but we're even dependent upon Jesus to initiate that life. Do you get that? That's heavy stuff, right? This isn't just milk, milk and toast stuff here. Milk, toast, milk, whatever. Whatever, I can't figure it out. This is heavy stuff, right? Jesus is saying, not only do I give life, but I'm even the one who initiates that, that life. And if, and if I don't initiate it, then you will remain blind and dead in your sins and trespasses, as Romans says. Did you ever see that movie, The Matrix? I, I absolutely love The Matrix. I'm dating myself. It came out right when I was in seminary, and so like we would skip class to go and see The Matrix. Don't tell mom and dad, Ricky. But yeah. I I did. It was such a great movie. And if you remember that scene in The Matrix when Neo walks into Morpheus, Morpheus is kind of the, almost like the God figure in that movie. And he's wearing this awesome black trench coat and these really cool beady black sunglasses. He just looks like a tough, cool dude. And Neo comes in and says, and Morpheus says to Neo, hello, Neo, right? And Neo says, I've been looking for you my whole life, right? And Morpheus says very coolly and very calmly, you wouldn't have been looking for me if I hadn't been looking for you first. They got that from the Bible. They stole that from the Bible because that's what Jesus is saying. You wouldn't be looking for me if I hadn't been looking for you first, right? And so the question you have to ask yourself, seriously, is do you feel Jesus looking for you? Do you feel, do you sense Jesus looking for you. Maybe you are here this morning. Maybe you felt this over the holidays that Jesus has been tugging at your heart. He's been pushing at your heart. Maybe he's been uncovering some sin in your life and it's just been abhorred and you're like, oh, what do I do with this? Because if you have sensed Jesus tugging at you, pushing at you, it's his grace looking for you, folks. See, the reason that you're looking for Jesus, maybe you're here, maybe you've been on this journey, this path, and you're looking for Jesus. The reason you even have an inkling of looking for Jesus is because he has been looking for you first. Don't ignore that. If he's touching your heart, don't, beloved, don't ignore that today. Don't ignore that, but embrace him for life. Because if you don't embrace him for life, you do have a problem. And we see that in this next part. Look what he says in verse 22. Jesus says in verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment, not just some judgment. What does he say? He has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now talk about to the Jews here, to the Pharisees, this was blasphemy beyond blasphemy. 
God the Father, Jesus, you're telling me that God the Father doesn't judge? Then who judges? Jesus says, he has given all judgment to me. In other words, every Jew in those days would have been thinking, someday, yeah, someday I'm going to stand before the throne of God and I'm going to have to give account for all my deeds. So the better I am now, the better chance I have in the future with God, right? That's the way they understood things. Jesus, once again, this category breaker, he comes down and he cuts down their belief in one fell swoop and says, listen, you are not going to stand before God. None of you will stand before God. You are going to stand before me. And what are you going to do with me, Pharisees? What are you going to do with me, folks? See, that's an inevitable question every single one of us will face someday. It's an inevitable reality that every single one of us here today is going to face. You know, we're not going to stand before God and God ask you, what did you do with me? We're not going to stand before God and he said, what did you do with my son Jesus? We, we won't stand before Jesus and he'll say, what did you do with my father? God will stand before Jesus and Jesus will ask, what have you done with me? All judgment has been given to me, Jesus says. Do you remember in Matthew 7, if you remember this in Matthew 7, there were some false disciples. And in Matthew 7, the most horrifying thing that Jesus could have said to somebody was not go to hell, although he does talk about hell a lot. But if you remember in Matthew chapter 7, when people were coming out to him, these false disciples saying, Jesus, we have done these great things in your name. We've performed miracles in your name, Jesus. We've prophesied in your name. We've done all these things in your name. Do you remember what Jesus says to them? He doesn't say depart and go from hell. What does he say? Go to hell. What does he say? Depart from me, right? I don't know what it is, but I've been running into a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I have over the years. But Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a very uh, subtle, well, it's full-blown heresy, just to tell you. But they subtly tell you their heresy and try to make you believe that it's not heresy. But Jehovah's Witnesses are really, what they believe is surprisingly similar to the ancient heresy in the early church called Arianism in the first, uh, first uh, hundred years, first century. And the Christian church in the first century rejected this false teaching about Jesus, Arianism, which is really what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there is, Jesus is a God, a little g, not capital G, but small caps G, God, but that he was not the eternal son of God. He wasn't the second person of the Trinity. The, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses totally deny the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe that Jesus was actually created by Jehovah God. They believe that Jesus, uh, Jesus wasn't a true God. They would totally reject the claims that Jesus was saying about himself here. And that leads me to, to this. Not only Jehovah's Witnesses, but every other major world religion, every other major world religion, they focus on basically two things, okay? Sometimes they focus on one thing. Sometimes they emphasize one over, the, one over the other. But basically, every major world religion, apart from Christianity, focuses on two things. One, it's, the first thing is to how, is how to, to, to give you a better life on the one hand, right? And the second thing is uh, how to teach you to avoid judgment. Basically, if you boil all world religions down, they teach you two things, how to have a better life and how to avoid judgment. And some emphasize judgment, some emphasize life more, but all of them are looking for the same thing. Vaguely, they point to the truth. This is how you have life. This is how you avoid judgment, right? What does Jesus do here? He says, listen, I am not pointing to the truth. He says what? I am the truth. 
I am the way. I am the judgment. I am the life. So the extent that you deal with Jesus here, you're going to be fine, right? But to the extent that you reject him, you're not going to be fine, right? You need to see that. And that's the offer that he gives as we end here. The offer he gives. Now think about the offer that Jesus gives. Even to these cold-hearted, mean Pharisees. These Pharisees weren't a bunch of cheery guys. They really weren't. I think they were frowny faces all the time, right? They just were not a real happy campers. They just kind of lived life ticked off, right? You know, don't break this law. Don't do that. I mean, they just were not. They were ornery guys. They were ornery old cod- codgers. They just really were. And, and Jesus could have dealt with them very harshly, right? He could have dismissed these guys, these legalistic, cold-hearted Pharisees. He could have thrown up his arms and said, listen, I'm done with you guys. But even to these most horrible, self-righteous sinners, he offers the same offer. Look what he says in verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, Jesus says, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Jesus says, and I can almost sense him or see him pleading with the Pharisees, trust me. What what are you guys trusting in? Don't trust in yourselves. Don't trust in your law. Don't trust in your performance. Don't trust in your righteousness. Trust in me, Jesus says. Are you trusting in the one who gives life and the one who gives judgment and who brought the two together, life and judgment, together on the cross and he shed his blood for you on the cross? Because you know what happened on the cross, folks? Historically, really what happened on the cross? The judge, who is Jesus, became the criminal, right? Which is really you and me. And he bore all of our sins on the cross. Christ bore all of your crimes on the cross And he died for those crimes. He died for your sin. And your sin died with him if you've trusted Christ. All of your sin, past, present, and future, all of the abhorrent things that you think, have said, have done, have lived, if you are in Christ, those things have died with Christ on the cross. And you are being made new. And if you trust him, that means you have eternal life. Now, when you hear that term eternal life, what do you think? I would venture to say that many of you, many of us, me included, it's almost like that term eternal life. It's just a churchy Christianity term and it just kind of loses its power and its significance. But it's so significant. We we often think of eternal life as just this nebulous thing that's so far removed from us, right? But Jesus is saying that eternal life begins now, right? And couched within this reality, this truth, this promise of eternal life now, couched within eternal life resides the most comforting of truths. Lean in and get this. Couched within this comforting truth of eternal life is this comforting truth of no condemnation. Think about this. You know, we would think, yes, eternal life means yes. I would agree with that. No condemnation in the future. Heaven, yes. I won't be condemned in heaven. But that also means eternal life means no, not just future. Heaven, it means now. It means no condemnation now if you are in Christ. That means you have been set free now, right? You have been set free from the law of death. And you have been covered in the righteousness of Christ if you've trusted him. You see, most of us here today, we don't have to give up our badness per se. It's easy for you to give up your badness, But Jesus is saying you also have to give up your goodness, right? And I think that's the biggest problem that many of us have in the church today is our goodness. 
our own righteousness, our own stinking self-righteousness. And not just a legalistic self-righteousness of don't drink, don't smoke, don't date the girl who does or whatever that phrase says. I mean what I call your survival self-righteousness. What do I mean by survival self-righteousness? What it means, oh, that God, you're not going to take care of me, so I've got to take care of myself in this life. That's survival self-righteousness. That God is not going to create this environment around me, so I've got to create it myself. But guess what, friends? That never, ever works. I don't know if y'all ever saw the movie Chocolate. Did y'all ever see that movie? It came out, I guess, was that in the late 90s or early 2000s? But in this movie, Chocolate, it's an awesome movie. Such a clear picture of the gospel. I'd watch it. I mean, it really is. Maybe not so good to watch with your kids, but adults it's, and students, it's a really good movie. But if you remember in the movie Chocolat, there's this lady named Vianne who moves into this really upright town in the middle of Lent. You know what Lent was? Lent was this uh, church calendar where you, 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 you give up certain things in observance of Christ and his death and sacrifice on the cross in preparation for Easter. So Vianne, she moves to this really uptight town in France uh, during Lent. And right in the middle of this uptight town during Lent, she opens up a chocolate store, right? And the people are walking by and, you know, it's Lent. You know, you can't eat chocolate. You're not supposed to drink sodas or whatever or wine or whatever it was, you know, that you gave up. And they're walking by this chocolate shop going, oh, you know, man, this chocolate looks really good, right? And Vianne's chocolate was not just any ordinary chocolate, right? It was this almost had a sense of magic to it. And as you came into Vianne's chocolate shop and you ate her chocolate, it, it began to, to help heal some of your troubles and your struggles. If you had a hard marriage, you could come in and eat some of Vianne's chocolate, spend some time with her, and all of a sudden you walk out and problem solved, right? It's pretty like a miracle chocolate, right? And so everybody in the town, the word spreads around. Everybody's excited about Vianne and her chocolates. And everybody's going during Lent. And, and guess who... The mayor of the town is like one of these Pharisees. He's freaking out. He's the guy who's the rule keeper. He makes the laws. He keeps the laws. And he busts everybody else who doesn't keep the laws, right? And so the mayor of the town is just utterly furious about Vianne and her new chocolate shop, right? And so, you know, he has been responsible for generations of keeping the rules. And so here Vianne comes in the middle of Lent and opens a chocolate store in the middle of town against all of the rules, busting all of the rules, but people like it. God forbid that people be happy, according to the mayor. And so you sense this tension developing during the entire movie that the mayor is trying to stop Vianne in her chocolate shop. And so towards the end of the movie, he decides that once and for all, he is going to stop Vianne in her chocolate shop. And so at night when Vianne is gone, the chocolate shop is locked up. He, he sneaks in, enters into the chocolate shop, breaks in, and begins to ransack Vianne's chocolate shop in an effort to destroy all of the shop, right? He gets into the display window and starts stomping chocolate, you know, trying to bust up the truffles. And as he does so, and he stomps truffles, some of the chocolate inevitably splashes onto the mayor's lips. Hmm. And he begins to taste the chocolate. And all of a sudden, he's overwhelmed. He's overcome, and he begins to gorge himself on Vianne's chocolate. And inevitably... The scene fades to black, and then it comes to the next morning. And who do you find gorged in chocolate in the middle of the display window, fast asleep, covered in chocolate, but the mayor of the town with a big smile on his face, right? See, the mayor of the town had his smile on his face for the rest of the movie because you see his self-righteousness was exchanged 
for grace. It's a powerful movie, powerful picture. So let me ask you this morning, Wellspring, to the extent you're willing to exchange all of your rule following, all of your self-righteousness, all of your goodness, all of your survival self-righteousness, all of your survival tools for the taste of God's grace. That's what brings transformation. Because you know the beauty of the cross. And, and Peter tells us this in Acts when he preaches to the early, uh, early Jews and, and Gentiles. And they're converted. But what does Peter tell them? That listen, you were the criminal. We were the criminals who crucified Christ. We were the ones who beat Jesus on the cross. And as that happened, the blood of Jesus spattered, if you will, on our lips. And we realized that it was the death and resurrection and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And because of that, we can live. See, that's a picture, folks, of communion, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate monthly. You know, it's not just some ritualistic thing that we do here. It's a real means of grace. It's, it's us eating and drinking and remembering and tasting the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we use the term celebrate when we do the Lord's Supper because it really is a celebration of His infinite grace to us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank you that Jesus, you delight to come in and break up our categories of self-righteousness. You delight to come in and break up our categories of, of rebellion and, and pride. And Jesus, you love to come in and break down the doors of, um, of protection that we try to put up against you. Um, Jesus, thank you that you're faithful. You don't just knock on the door. <laughs> you kick the door down. And you come in and rescue us. You're the one who comes to us even first that we wouldn't even seek you if you hadn't first sought us. That's an amazing thing that Jesus, you would come in your grace to sinners like us. Uh, we don't deserve that. And, and thank you that Jesus, you sealed that for us on the cross when your blood was shed for our sin, that we really were the ones deserving to die on the cross and deserve death upon death and torture upon torture. But instead, Jesus, you assumed and, and took that for us on the cross. Uh, thank you. Thank you that you gave yourself and your blood for us. And uh, Lord, as we celebrate communion this morning, as we partake of these elements, Lord, they're just grape juice. It's just homemade bread. Uh, they are just, you know, physical elements. They're not really the real body and blood of Jesus, but the real body and blood of Jesus really was shed on the cross for us. And so, Lord, as we remember this, Lord, as we take these elements upon us, as we drink them, as we eat them, that we're really, we're eating the grace of Jesus. We're believing that, Lord, it's your grace, the only thing that can save us. It's your love, the only thing that can save us from ourselves and even our own goodness. So, Lord, I pray, would you help us to see and even come, Holy Spirit, and, and open our eyes to how many of us often buy into the, to the, to the heresy that our goodness or our pedigree or we came from a good family or we're an American or whatever somehow gives us favor with you. We cannot earn any favor with you in ourselves. It has to come from your, your son, the Lord Jesus. So we thank you, Lord. I pray that we would drink deeply the favor of Jesus this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. If the elders would come forward this morning and we'll, we'll um, get started with the Lord's Supper.
as they're doing that, let me just remind you that this is not, uh, this is God's table. This isn't a Presbyterian table. This isn't Wellspring Presbyterian Church's table. So if you are a member in good standing with the evangelical church, you've trusted the Lord Jesus for your life, then you're invited to partake with us here this morning. If you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then absolutely we invite you to partake and to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you're not sure yet where you stand with the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you, don't let this time be in, you know, let me encourage you to let the elements pass you by this morning and don't be embarrassed about that. In fact, um, Paul says very clearly that if you don't know the Lord and you take these elements that you eat and bring judgment upon yourself, don't do that. Allow the elements to pass you by and, and use this time to ask the Lord, Lord, where do I really stand with you? Maybe I've really tried to trust you with my goodness and you know, coming to church 20 times a year or 50 times a year or twice a year or whatever or walking grandma across the street or whatever it is that you think is, equates good. Lord, help me to see, am I really in, a, in right relationship with you? Maybe your child is not yet a communicant member of, of Wellspring. Let me encourage you again to let the elements pass by your child, not to embarrass them, but this is a great opportunity for you today to explain the gospel of grace to them. For remember that Christ was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord Jesus, if you remember on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body and it's broken, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your willingness to take our sin upon yourself. Thank you that your body was broken for us and we ask that, Lord, you would set apart this bread from a secular to a sacred use that we might always remember and cherish and drink deeply and eat deeply of the sacrifice of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.